This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Everything you need to know about money and the markets and then some. Welcome to the Money Beat podcast on this Monday. Paul Vigna, Stephen Grosser here with you. Hope you all had a good weekend if you're in the greater New York area. Hope you enjoyed the weather. It's gorgeous. Uh, oh my God. Yesterday was absolutely beautiful. Crowded out in your neck of Brooklyn? I was, at, I was in Prospect Park at uh, the Smorgasbord, which is, you know, you can go around and get tons of little um, bites to eat from all the restaurants. That's something hip, wonderful. hip Brooklyners. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, hipsters. Yeah. Brought the two kids. It was you nice. Did. They're very nice. Very Sitting nice. out eating. Doesn't get better. <laughs> does not. It absolutely does not. Well, we are glad to have you here with us, folks, and we are very glad to have with us today Peter Liguri, who is president and CEO of Tribune Media. Peter. Correct. Thanks yes. for coming in. My pleasure. And, uh, you know, I know you're in New York on business. One of the reasons that you and I mm-hmm. got, got hooked up is because of the show Underground, which mm-hmm. is on your WGN America. And yes. uh, we, we, we can geek out on that a little later. <laughs> but one of the things I wanted to talk about that I, that I find very interesting is, is your entire approach to this network. And maybe a year and a half ago, I was flipping around the cable channels one night and I came across a show – had no idea what it was. Mm-hmm. Looked interesting. I had no idea what it was, and I didn't know what the network was. And I had to look. I had to go through the the cable info thing to find out the name of the show, the network. It was Manhattan. It was WGN America. And I said, I've I've never heard of this show. I've mm-hmm. never heard of this network. That was the first of your scripted shows that you guys put out, and that was I guess that was the vanguard of of this entire change that mm-hmm. you've had at this network. What are you? How are you doing this at WGN America, and why are you doing this? Well, you were uh, definitely not in the minority yeah. of people who had not heard about uh, WGNA, and um, you know I've had a past experience of <clears throat> building a cable network from scratch. Um, I used to run FX, Networks, FX right. for your parent company. Right, uh, right. So news, we used to be in Corps. a way – I don't think you and I overlap. In a way, we were colleagues. Yes. yes. And I used to say uh, I couldn't get people to spell FX if I asked them to. And here I am taking over a uh, network named after a newspaper because WGNA actually stands for World's Greatest Newspaper in America. And so uh, very much we uh, replicated a, a bit of a playbook that we'd gone down – a path before. Uh, WGNA was somewhat different. FX, when I started, was in 28 million homes. Uh, it had a daytime look and feel. That's where all the money was being invested. In prime time, they had Batman and Green Hornet and Family Affair. And uh, it was kind of a backwards business mm-hmm. strategy because prime is really where it's, where it's at. WGN America was a superstation, and by far and away, I'm not going to bore you, your listeners, nor any potential investors with the nuanced difference between a superstation and a general entertainment cable network. But the process was was somewhat similar. Thirteen years ago, we laid a foundation of ratings so that people can sample the network, and we did it with syndicated programming. At that point, we bought Ally McBeal and NYPD Blue in the practice. People come to your network. And at that time, you were able to actually introduce some originals. Back then, we, had, we started with TV movies. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we started with TV movies then, there were maybe seven or eight entities which actually produced scripted programming. Right. So what we wanted to do was show everyone, one, we can do it. 
Two, we had taste. And three, we needed to seed a brand. So we did films uh, like Deliberate Intent and The Pentagon Papers and Sins of the Father and RFK, all basically geared toward making some some noise out there. Mm -hmm. And then eventually had enough traffic where we introduced The Shield and Nip Tuck and Rescue Me. Similar strategy on WGN, though uh, we didn't do movies and we actually reversed the process a little bit. First, we aired, and Manhattan was our second show. The first scripted uh, drama was Salem. Oh, yeah, yeah. Salem came before Manhattan. Yes. Um, Salem continues to do well. We've announced that season uh, three of Salem will be airing uh, around Halloween. And Salem premiered first. Then we had Manhattan in production. And then we started airing our syndicated programming, Blue Bloods, uh, persons of interest in elementary. Again, getting more traffic to the network. From there, uh, we were able to premiere Manhattan, got critical reviews, furthered, cement, uh, cemented our brand, which was really geared toward American themes that were of high quality and compelling. And almost, as you and I once discussed, quality noise is what we what we looked for. But it was a very, very calculated, sober build. We went from Salem, which was successful, to then greenlighting Manhattan, mm -hmm. to then putting out Outsiders and Underground. It's a success built upon success approach, which is the best way to uh, approach it from a financial perspective. And we also found it's the best way to get your audience slowly up to speed on what your brand is and what their expectations should be when they come to WGNA. The, the thing I find interesting about that, that strategy is the time that you're doing it in, right? Mm -hmm. When you were at FX Network, Networks, that, that was a very different time for television, for scripted programming. Mm -hmm. uh, you're friends with uh, – I'm blanking on John Langreff. With John Langreff, who yes. last summer talked about peak TV and caused a huge ruckus uh, mm -hmm. out in L.A. about TV. There are more scripted television shows – that will debut this year, I believe, than in any other year. Last year was a record year too. I mean, we are flooded with net, with with television, and it's not just it's not just television. It's it's online. It's Hulu. It's Netflix. I mm -hmm. mean, everybody has original programming. There are more shows. There really there are more shows than you can keep up with. You guys at Tribune went through a. a the last several years were were a pretty nasty time for the company. Right, you had the Sam mm -hmm. Zell buyout didn't go well, bankruptcy, emerged from bankruptcy, then you came on board, made the decision mm -hmm. to split off publishing. Uh, I mean, in a way, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm no, trying, feel to, free. trying to put you on the spot a little bit, Peter. That's kind mm -hmm. of our job. But uh, <laughs> in a way, you, you had to do something. And what you chose to do at the time you chose to do it, I think is probably as, as difficult as it could be. I mean, you could have just done reality television. You could mm -hmm. have done just simple things that you knew were going to appeal to a lower denominator and get ratings. Why, why, why decide to try to go after quality programming uh, at, this, at this specific time in the world? When in doubt, always bank on quality. 
And though I, I uh, have a lot of respect for what John has said, and the facts are clearly in his favor that there is peak TV. I think the number is 412 scripted shows premiered over the course of the, the last year. I would say my nuanced difference between uh, our outlook and John's is there is a ton of TV, but there's never enough great TV. There's never enough quality TV, which aims at, at being distinctive, which is aiming for a certain provocation and level of quality that speaks to to the audience. And uh, I have, throughout my career, both at HBO, FX, Fox, and today here at WGNA, uh, audiences appreciate being respected. And that is something that I think when I, I look at myself and Matt as people who develop programming, Matt being Matt Matt Chernis, who is yeah. our president of WGNA, uh, we both our wheelhouse is seeking out quality programming that speaks to an audience and speaks to that audience in in a respectful manner, and in a manner that compels them to be highly involved in their shows. You know, when you talk about reality programming and going for ratings, I think one of the most challenging things to do in this current environment is to actually reach for populism. You wind up being second second choice to way too many people. And when you have a lot of television options mm-hmm. out there, first choice is always available. So our programming philosophy really is be someone's favorite show. In this environment, if 98% of people reject you, you got a hit. You got right. You know, back 20 years ago, you, you were canceled. Yeah. How difficult is it? to, you know, get the quality shows. I mean, that's that seems like a very, you know, sort of a big gamble because, <laughs> you know, you can, you, you know, there are a lot of mediocre um, television shows out there and there's a lot more, I'm assuming, I'm assuming you see come by, oh, yeah. you know, and pitched um, than quality. How difficult is that process? It's it's a challenging one and, and I do have to applaud uh, Matt Maternus and his team. Step one, by far and away, is going out to the creative community with a, a bit of an established track record, which between Matt, myself, John Wax, some of the others in, in the group, they have a pedigree where the creative community is comfortable with us. The second thing is, uh, and I used to work at Ogilvy and Mather, and oh. David Ogilvy said something that I've always ascribed to, which is, give me the creative freedom of a tightly written brief. And Matt has done such a fantastic job of going out to the community and specifically outlining what types of shows we'd be looking for. So, frankly, we're not spending our time with a lot of people coming in with, with, with reality programming, and nor comedies, nor certain types of dramas. No. Uh, they are really coming to us having a very, very good chance of our ears perking up. And given the fact that we're not producing a ton of shows, if we're saying yes to your script and or yes to your pilot, you have a very, very good chance of getting on the air. You then couple that with our process on how we sit there and evaluate what seems like a show that should appear on WGNA and not. And and look, with all of that precision, that's when it's working at its best because we've all been around where we've had a phenomenal script with a great writer, a great writing staff – fantastic cast, awesome director, and you fail. So with all that being said, we're pretty modest about it. you got to have a really, really big dollop of luck 
for everything to align. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, certainly fans of Manhattan are, are feeling you right now because I know people were really – people really loved that show mm. and it lasted two seasons and you guys had to cancel it because it just didn't – just, I guess the the numbers just weren't working out for it, right? Yeah, you know, it's one of the it's it clearly was the toughest decision I've ever had to make since I I've uh, joined Tribune. Um, but there always is that tension between commercialism, finance, and good business with great creative. Uh, Manhattan was one of those shows that Sam Shaw and Tommy Schlamme did a fantastic job of writing, directing, and producing that show. It so clearly spoke to a very specific mindset in the audience um, and, and, and did it with uh, just an incredible point of, point of view. Canceling it really hurt. But you know, I'm paid to be a businessman as well. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you have to reach a certain economic bar with any of the shows that you're investing in so that the network continues to grow, you get a return on, on your investment. And frankly, you know, every day I face two constituents, shareholders and ratings and, ratings. and the audience. And the audience, right. All right, let's take a break. We're going to come back after this message. More with Peter Liguri from Tribune Media. I'm Veronica Dagger. Do you want to know how the rich invest, spend, and protect their money? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. Paul Vigna, Stephen Grosser here in the studio with Peter Liguri today, who is president and CEO of Tribune Media. And uh, Peter, you were just talking a minute ago about being a businessman and, and hard decisions. And you guys have said publicly that uh, you know, 2015 was was not a, a great year for you guys on the books. Just the balance sheet. I mean, you lost mm-hmm. money overall. You had to write down a, a lot of goodwill. Um, mm-hmm. Took some impairment charges, and said that you guys are looking at asset sales. Can you give us any update on that? I was very surprised that you did not write off the idea of even selling WG in America if the numbers were, you know. Uh, can you just give us an update on where all that stands right We're now? We're very, very early in the process. But, you know, the logic was, was pretty straightforward, and, I, and I, I've discussed it before. The business is actually performing well. The EBITDA of our, of our businesses is quite strong, and we see a very nice time horizon as to where the, where the business could go. But there seems to be this gap between the business, its performance, and its, its trajectory versus where we are in terms of uh, it being valued out there. So we want to make sure that we're exploring each and every opportunity to unmine the value of our assets. All options on the table, very early in the process. Mm -hmm. And the thing that we're most mindful of is the best way to create value for the company is on a day-to-day basis operating the business efficiently and ambitiously. And we're continuing to do that. A couple of years ago, you spun off, obviously, and you weren't the only company to do this. A lot of mm-hmm. <laughs> media companies did that. I think a company uh, that, that we, we might work might for, work for um, yeah. did the same thing. But th- this idea of breaking out the broadcasting from the publishing, um, Tom, the sort of value of the broadcasting, people you know, people were on the assumption that they wasn't giving value correctly. Is that still? Do you think that you know the case of you know, or a broadcasting networks facing uh, different pressures than they were even three years ago? 
Well, let's take a, a, a big step back on the on the spin. Yeah. Uh, it was our calculation that the most important thing we can do is focus on our our individual businesses. And uh, despite the fact that we produce about almost 80,000 hours of local news per week via our local stations, there's an enormous difference between news for a newspaper and local television news. So creating a management team with a strategy and a, a set of financials that are solely focused on newspapers was the single best thing that that, that, that entity could, could have and create that focus. Similarly, that's why we, we separated the broadcast business. It allowed me and, and uh, my management team to sit, th- sit there and focus on television and broadcast, and it's part of our strategic alternatives. Where should our focus be? And we're not really a real estate company per se, yet we have very, very valuable real estate, iconic real estate. That is better suited in someone else's hands than than ours. As long as we're getting the proper price for our shareholders, doors open, we'll, we'll, we'll take your phone call. The broadcast business is different today than it was three years ago. Um, I, I, there has been a bit of a malaise uh, given the trajectory uh, or the you know the prognosticated trajectory of where broadcast TV is going, the challenges on ratings, the challenges right. on advertising, the challenges on distribution, most notably yeah. as uh, discussed for for Disney. What I'm most heartened about is the fact that we're we are going against the trend. We WGNA is a perfect example of that. That we have faced renewals with our cable uh, partners across the board. We have not only renewed with the mall, but we've grown from 65 million homes to just about 80. We've gained uh, uh, carriage fees, which is what they pay us for our, our programming. And we've actually increased those, those fees. This in the face of supposed ratings declines. We're running against that. Our ratings are actually going up. If you were to look at our ratings this March versus last March, in the demos, we're up about 50%. So we're, we're growing. When you hear things like cord cutting, we're, we've been able to face cord cutting by being of value to these cable affiliates, to our audiences, and to advertisers. So, again, we were able to grow from 65 to 80. When you look at the business aspect of advertising, our uh, our CPMs are going up. We're up about 30% versus a year ago. When you look at what we're writing versus the upfront, where uh, large media buying agencies buy for a for the year, we're almost doubling some of the rates that we were getting um, previously. So again, almost getting back to your original question, if you bet on quality, the economics seem to fo- to follow, albeit scripted programming or high quality local news. Uh, a couple of fun facts about Peter Liguri that, that maybe you don't know out there, folks. One, I, I found this out in my, my 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 voluminous research that I do ahead of every single interview, <laughs> of course. You know, uh, you were an associate producer on Big Night. Correct. I love Big Night. Thank you. Oh my god! No, no, oh, that so makes me so happy. Oh, I love that movie. Thank you. Uh, my mother was such an awful cook. <laughs> that is one of the funniest. Yeah, I don't know if you have to be Italian. Are you Italian? I'm Italian. Yeah, yeah. So. I, you, but you like that movie. Too. You saw it, right? You don't have to be Italian. To I'm, I'm, part of, movie. I'm part Italian, too. You're part Italian, yeah. too. But it helps. Yes. It helps. That's a great movie. I love Big Night. Well, thank uh, you if, so much. Yeah, if, if you folks haven't seen it, go go rent it, watch it. It's a really great movie. Uh, another thing I found out, 
You proposed to your wife at a New York Mets game. Yes. Was it was it, I assume she said yes. She did. Yeah, she okay. did. Uh, it was um, the game that Dwight Gooden came back from uh, drug rehab. Really? Yes. <laughs> I was going to ask uh, you if you remembered what game it was. I, I do, Clearly. distinctly. Yeah. And uh, I did it in the middle of the seventh inning to take me out to the ball game. So you're, she said yes. Wow. You're rested. a Mets fan. Yeah, one of the few Bronx Italians who <laughs> is and survived, more importantly. Right. The Mets, I was saying to Paul uh, earlier, the Mets were – you know, I, I was too young to really remember Bucky oh. Dent. So Buckner was my you know, sort of introduction to the curse the of being a Red of, Sox fan, yeah. the pains. It was, I was, I think, 11 or 12. So you hate um, the Mets. You, yes. you just hate them. Yeah. You it took them. a long time for me I, to be able to like them. I love to cook, but I don't think you're going to want to come over dinner at my house because I have a number of fa- uh, framed photos of Bu- Buckner uh, b- booting the ball, Do you? both yeah. signed by he and, and Mookie Wilson. Oh. So I, I, I feel your pain. That was I, my moment. Well, no. you, could, you could hang a black drape over those. I could. I, could. Come, I yeah. could always recover from Red Sox fans because um, I, I hate to say this to you, Paul, but I really – not not the biggest of Yankee fans. So the the Red Sox are my second favorite team. Oh, wow. I appreciate <laughs> that. All right. Uh, let's get back on the rails here. Let's get back on track. Uh, actually, that was not a segue to – I wasn't trying to make a pun there about the rails. But uh, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about is, is Underground, is one of your new shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got sent here back in January – the media kit for Underground had heard nothing about. It. I didn't even mm. know what the show was, and the media kit alone, I thought, was so well put together that it intrigued me. And I said, "I bet there's something about this this show." And I took a couple of pictures of the media kit, put it out on Twitter, and just said, "Hey, new show coming out. This mm-hmm. looks kind of interesting." Just the reaction to the media kit, the pictures of the media kit surprised me. I mean, it really, you know, a couple hundred retweets, a lot of likes, people mm. responding to it. And at that point, I said to myself, there, there is, there's definitely something about this show. And then I watched the episodes that you guys, the screeners, mm-hmm. you got, and I knew there was something about the show. Um, talk to me a little bit about the, the show. If you don't know, folks, if you're not watching it either, really, you should go back and catch up on it. It is about a group of slaves on a plantation in 1857, Georgia, that plot their escape along the Underground Railroad. It is, you know, and I'm not saying this just because you're here. I mean, I've said it on Twitter. It's a tremendous show. Thank you. I mean, the writing is, you know, being a writer, that's what really attracts Mm -hmm. me. The writing, I think, is tremendous. The acting is great. A lot of people that I never even heard of, and and they're all very good in it. Let's talk a little bit about the show. What went into the decision you guys made to 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 pick it up, to put it out? What, what were you banking on it? You know, what did you expect out of it? Just mm-hmm. kind of run us through that. Sure. Um, well, first, thanks for watching. Uh, <laughs> that's that's really that is that is important. And a little shout out to Rita Rita Cooper Lee, who put together that press book, and it's um, reflective of our attitude about the show which is that there is a zen about this show that we felt from from the get-go and we wanted to treat it with the respect and and the the quality that we felt it had and when you present that to an audience they just pick up on it now how did we pick this show up um we spent a lot of time discussing whether or not a show hits the zeitgeist at the time and uh, you and I once talked about mm-hmm. the zeitgeist and I actually took the time to look up 
what zeitgeist <laughs> really means. Yeah. And it's actually a German uh, uh, word called uh, ghost, time ghost. Clearly, zeitgeist in the German form has nothing to do okay, with, with how we, right. how we how develop. We it. But what it, what it ultimately is, is what's the um, spirit of the time that motivates people and speaks to people a need, an angst, an urge? And clearly with underground, especially with what's going on with uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, Ferguson, Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm. et cetera, that there was in, in the zeitgeist, as we would put it, a need to exercise what people were feeling out there. And what people were feeling uh, you know, very much was that uh, there is a choice and one can be proactive and one needs to take that step. And this show very much does that. This is not a show about victims. This is a show about heroes. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that WG America, broadly speaking, we like to talk about American themes. But the abolitionists, the slaves that ran to freedom, are really American heroes in our minds, the same way as soldiers who hit the beach in Normandy or people who are defending us, our liberties today. And we're a country founded on that. Right? At first, the colonists came for religious freedom, civil libertarians. Then uh, the revolutionaries fought taxation without representation, civil liberties. Well, risking life and limb, both as a runaway and as an, a, an abolitionist, is another form of civil, civil liberties being, being exercised with the greatest of courage and the greatest of proactivity. And it really did speak to an angst that's going on out there. And we made sure that we honored the facts. We made sure that we honored the courage of these heroes. And I do believe that the audience experiences that. Take something away. You know, you talk about tweets. Yeah. When we're on, we're the number one tweeted show on Wednesday nights. Mm-hmm. We're the number one tweet, period, trending tweet on Wednesday nights, period. Number six worldwide. Yeah. I feel like people don't merely watch the show. People support the show. Yeah, it is a it is it is a uh, 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 it speaks to them on such a fundamental and elemental basis that they're in whole hog. The tweets are incredibly yeah, different. They are. I mean, from your standard entertainment tweet. Uh, I even you know even because I get the screeners having seen the shows, I still tune in on Wednesday night to watch it. Half half because of just what happens on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is it's it's really incredible to see what some people say on Twitter and and how engaged they are in it. And the fact that you guys have the cast, m- almost all of the cast, I think, goes on Twitter Wednesday night and yeah. tweets and really not just tweets, but they really interact with the fans and they really talk to them. Was, was that a, was that conscious also? I mean, was that something that just kind of came about, or because I don't think other shows really take it to that extent. You know. Comes about uh, what winds up happening with certain productions. Uh, and we were talking baseball and in athletics. All of a sudden, an electric moment happens where individuals, albeit athletes or actors, actually don't need to talk to each other about the magic that they're feeling. There is such massive pride amongst the writers and producers and actors and directors of this show that they really do want to take to, to, the, uh, to the airwaves or 
as we would we'd call it, the, you know, the, the world of Twitter, to get the word out. And yeah. it, it feels like more of a calling. It feels like a mission for them. It is not by any means just a job. They have been so selfless with their with their time, showing up in museums, showing mm-hmm. up in mega churches, showing up speaking to the community. Uh, you know, these are actors who experienced the Underground Railroad as being just you know a little block or a little segment within their American history book. Yet it was a truly uh, m- monumental moment in American history and African American history. Yeah. Now. I think it debuted with what five around over five five six million yep. viewers. Obviously, you you there's a lot of work that goes into getting it out and making sure people know about it to have a debut like that. And I was wondering if you could sort of talk about the marketing effort because that seemed very you know key to the success here. And it wasn't a usual marketing effort. Mm-hmm. Yes, we did a few things. First and foremost, uh, we wanted to position. Uh, the runaways accurately. And uh, number one was that they were proactive. These were these were not victims of circumstance. They were not necessarily running away from something, but mindfully we had them running towards something, running toward freedom, running toward the most fundamental of American values. All men and women are created equal. So that was point one. Point two was Again, building a network around American themes, we wanted to make sure that we went to the heartland of the, of the country. We didn't just do L.A. screenings and New York screenings for the intelligentsia of, of the country. We actually went to the viewer. Not that we mind that, being here in New York. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And, um, you know, I could aspire to at some point joining you as the intelligentsia, but right now I'll just be a TV guy. I don't know if we rank there, but, you know, Um, we we like being called that. So, And I think that clearly worked in our favor. Yeah. That there was genuine responses from genuine viewers Mm -hmm. who felt what the show expressed. And they took to Twitter and they took to to their uh, their emails to get the, the the word out. And there's nothing better than genuine, heartfelt reactions. And that's that's really how we went after the show. Yeah, you know, I was uh, interviewed Amira Van, who plays Ernestine on the show. Mm-hmm. And while we were talking, we started talking about Twitter. And she has a background in stage in in oh, live yeah. theater, and she. As we're as we're talking, this dawned on her. She said, "You know, it's actually being on Twitter while the show is on." To her, it said, "It's it's a lot like being on a live stage, where you get a feel for the audience and you get a much more intimate sense of what people are experiencing as they're watching than you do with you know than you would otherwise on a television show. On a television show, you film it, you walk away, and then it airs. Mm-hmm. You know, and I thought that was a really interesting way to to describe that how the Twitter audience is, how that how that." Uh, revolves around the show. I thought that was really interesting and quite energizing for everyone. Everyone involved. Yeah. I, you know, it's all all well and good to get a very nice paycheck for yeah. for a job, but there is nothing like knowing you're connecting with people and challenging them and motivating them for a cause of good. And, and you know, part of it too is, and I know you're going to have a, an opinion on this. Um, academics have taken to this show. Because I know that the first goal is you guys look. You have to get ratings. You have to have advertisers. You know, you have to have a, a successful product. Uh, and this show, it's really interesting the way they straddle the line between 
being a historical drama and being an entertainment. Mm-hmm. And I think they do it very successfully, actually. I mean, they really do. It, it's, it is, it's very unflinching, mm-hmm. but you are engaged. Um, but I, I'm surprised the academics have really taken to it. And I know, you know, because you and I as well, your thesis was in this realm. Um, it, was that another avenue guys that you guys specifically kind of thought you might be able to to have some influence with? Or is that just a, a lucky byproduct? Well, I think it was a lucky byproduct that, that built upon itself. Uh, you know, this was one of those rare stories where truth is more powerful than fiction. Uh, you know, what is the definition of drama? How much pressure can you put on a, on, on a person for them to reveal their true selves? Well, what greater drama than potentially leaving your family behind to race right. toward freedom, knowing full well uh, life and limb is, is at stake? I think our integrity in how we were approaching it, clearly we, we're creating a piece of entertainment. There is no doubt about it. Right. The show uh, continues to do well, and its aim is to provide high levels of entertainment, focusing on the greatest escape of all, of all American times. But the integrity in which we tackled it, our ability to focus on being uh, historically as factual as, as we could – created a momentum which allowed us to do certain things. The biggest one being where we shoot. We actually shoot in Louisiana on property that LSU owns that was a fully run plantation with with uh, with slaves. The slave quarters still exist. Some of those structures you, you've uh, seen uh, in the in the show are in fact slave structures that existed way back in the 18, 1850s. That openness that the academic community showed us, again, created a fuel for all the creators involved to make sure that they are treating their this production, their character, that scene with the greatest levels of respect. And I think it comes out in the performance and the audience is locked into it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because I've – I've spoken several times now with with Rita Cooper Lee, who's mm-hmm. on your staff over there, uh, and we both have started diving into the slave narratives. Because I know Misha Green and Joe Pekaski, who created the show, did a lot of research. Mm-hmm. Just watching the show kind of got me interested in it. And I'm sure other people have too. And I, you know, I, I know that I am reading a lot of things and I'm discovering things that I just did not know previously. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who is having that experience with the show. But ultimately, it is something that has to bring in ratings. It mm-hmm. has to do well for you guys or it'll get canceled, mm-hmm. even if you love it. And I know you do, oh, right? No doubt. Yeah. I mean, when you first came across this project – and again, I want you to talk about your thesis that you wrote in, in college if you want. You don't sure. To, um, you know. I, I, I'll, but I'll, I think it's interesting because you really were connected to this show early on. Yeah. And I, I will say this. From a businessman's standpoint, I actually – asked this show to jump over a higher hurdle. Because of my my love of this time in history, uh, and, and I'll give you a very brief synopsis of, of, of the thesis I wrote in, in college, which was about the ministers that preached to the slaves. Uh, not, not exactly the stuff of great commercial appeal I've, <laughs> I, I readily recognize. But what so intrigued me about that was – 
the bulk of the uh, the ministers were written off as pawns of the slave owners, but many many of them actually were in the process of of recognizing that for that to work, for religion to be felt, two things needed to happen. One, the slave owner themselves needed to be paternal or maternal. And secondly, and more importantly, they needed to recognize the slaves had souls, which was step one toward their being equals. And uh, so given the fact that I love that moment in history, this show better have been good <laughs> because I didn't want anyone in your shoes accusing yeah. me of just wanting to, you know, play Pandering, out, quick pop, <laughs> playing out the fantasy of my, sure. my college theory thesis in 1982. But, you know, with the show, again, going toward, toward, um, toward ratings and commerciality, my experience and Matt's experience alongside of me has always been if you somehow have a show come into you and it is attacking a zeitgeist, you have a chance of being someone's favorite show. And, you know, again, I'll, I'll go back to FX. When we did The Shield, it was right after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And the real question was, you know, what price justice? How, how far are we willing to sacrifice our civil liberties to, to be safe? Nip-tuck, what price beauty? Mm-hmm. You know, this, was, this was one of the first times on a mass basis people can actually activate a prescribed definition of beauty and what kind of self-hate needs to go in that. That was very much in the, in the zeitgeist. Rescue me. Where are we in the healing process of 9-11? Similarly here, when we were building the, the network, these shows went after a certain zeitgeist. Salem which one could sit back and say historical drama, 1620s, witchcraft. Ultimately, what we were expressing, and, and, and uh, Brandon had a, a very uh, beautiful and succinct theory about why the show would work, it's reflective of the political environment. As he would put it, uh, in this current political environment, either you're red or you're blue, and heaven forbid a little bit of purple sneaks into either side, you're ostracized. And the only people who can destroy our political system are us ourselves. Uh, outsiders uh, is, very much speaks to the political yeah. mindset that given the you know, malaise of, let's call it, the, the middle class economically over the last 15 years and certainly since 2008, uh, more than anything, and then you were seeing it expressed both on the right and the left with Trump and mm-hmm. Sanders, is the system doesn't work for me. I'm going to voice that by actually going and voting for outsiders. And, yeah. and uh, that's what that show is, man versus the system. When it comes to underground, undoubtedly, uh, especially given the, the heartfelt feelings that are going on, especially within the African-American community, uh, black lives matter, our lives matter, individual lives matter, is anthemic. And it is something that needs to be exercised. And at what price are you willing to pay to make sure your civil liberties are protected, your kids' civil liberties are protected? And that really is the great fodder of drama. It's we exercise and practice what we're willing to sacrifice. What would we do in that situation? And again, when you look at all of those shows as a collective, that is kind of how we've developed over the years, uh, and it's paid dividends in more instances than not. We don't have a perfect track record. We will never have a 
perfect right. track record. One of these days I may be in these very studios talking about a real stinker <laughs> that we do, but that's that's the uh, the business we chose. Yeah. Uh, do you want to – Well, I was just going to yeah. sort of take a step back because, I mean – and, and and talked about taking over a mature media company and some of the challenges that you sort of faced in trying to, you know, uh, you know, the sort of evolution or change uh, the company around and anything that sort of surprised you in that process. That's a really insightful question because before I took the job, I did. I spent a ton of time thinking about that and whether I was up to the challenge, and. The mindset I took was, let's be a 175-year-old startup. We, the company really was started 175 years ago with the Hartford Current. Um, yet we had access to a wide audience. The relevance of news via newspapers or local news is still as relevant today as it was 175 years ago. Just how we're getting it out there is different. And we should be energized by the options that are there. Look, here we are. We're doing a right. blogcast. Five years ago, if I said we was doing a blogcast, people yeah. would look at me like I, you know, I, I just arrived from 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 Mars. So it was taking the values that that company had, taking the culture that existed, which was a high integrity culture, and activating it toward the new modern vehicles that existed. And again, much like the the actors in Underground, once it starts working. The culture winds up changing because you look to the right and left of you and your colleagues are working at a, a better rate than they ever have with higher quality output than they've ever done. And, and it feeds on itself. And you're actually proud to go out there and say, I work at Tribune or I work on at WGNA or I work at WPIX. It's, it's that kind of camaraderie that needs to get activated. And I will admit culture's hard. Uh, we're not there yet. There's a ton of work to be done. But the ability for people to go out and almost wear their company, right? talk about our shows, talk about um, what we're producing on a, on a daily basis, let's say, on, on, on local news, that's the kind of activation that's needed to have a, a, a business fully express itself. And we're, we're on that path. We're not there yet, though. One of, the, one of the things you see, like you hear a lot of talk about is like with, I mean, with media companies, I mean, we you know, a lot of the old media companies, we face a lot of startups. And how do you bring that kind of startup culture, the ability to be sort of nimble, try new things, throw things against the wall, see if they stick to a company that is a 170-year-old uh, culture? Because that's, the, you know, one of the things, I mean, you know, that I think all companies, you know, old companies sort of can struggle with. Um is that something that you tried to bring to the Tribune media? Yes. And, you know, I, I have studied uh, startups, and I've, uh, I'm a big fan of the, the D School at, at Stanford. And you know, one of the most important things you can do to activate and reactivate a, a culture who's, who's pretty much done it successfully for a number of years is to embrace failure. 
uh, I myself, as a CEO, have had many, many failures while I've been at this job, and make no, no mistake about it. But it's the intent of the action. It's the intent of the tactic that needs to be uh, looked at. And if what we're trying to do is drive shareholder value through innovation, through creativity, and even if you fall short, you've learned something from it. You've pushed the limits. You've expanded the flexibility of the company. And it's making sure that each worker feels the safety net of proper intention will be will, will, will be you will have your your back is so much a part of that and recognizing innovation applauding innovation literally sitting there and i i've i've talked across the company ask yourself i've been doing it this way for how long i'm sure it works that's why you continue to do it ask yourself is there a different way of doing it and and give it a whirl. I don't care if you're in accounts receivable or I don't care if you're in front of a camera. Give it a shot. You don't know necessarily what's going to come of it other than you're going to learn something. And we all need to support ourselves in, in that. And that's the most critical element. Everyone has everyone else's back. And sort of what are your – do you feel like your biggest sort of challenges are – because the media, I mean, as we're both in the media industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're constantly, you know, cha- facing challenges ourselves. How, what are your the challenges you sort of see, you know, your biggest challenges now? And, and what do you think they could be in five years from now? Yeah, most challenges, without getting business specific, let me just uh, work off of, 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 of culture, is fighting cynicism and skepticism. Uh, I, I think that that is the, the biggest anchor uh, that any business can face. And you almost need to uh, approach your workday with the sobriety uh, of an adult and the curiosity of a child. And how do you maintain both of those? How do you act like an adult but still maintain that, that childish openness to different ways of doing things? Uh, and I, I think that's the the number one thing holding back companies these days. And you know, please not to not to patronize you all, but just look at what the Wall Street Journal has done. You know, a, a print newspaper, year old yeah. front paper, yeah, yeah, paper pulp and and ink. And here we are, broadcasting. Right. Here <laughs> you are on on Twitter. Here you are figuring out ways to make the Wall Street Journal as relevant as possible at the moment of contact. And that is that is acting as good business people while still having the curiosity of a child. And that's kind of a, a, huh. an approach we take. It's the, uh, the, the, the Buddhist concept of the beginner's mind mm. reminds me of it. It's, well stated. It's something like that. Uh, although in, in this studio, usually cynicism and skepticism, or you can't fight those. <laughs> not when I'm here. Not when yeah, I'm yeah, here. Not, not when you're sitting next to Paul. Not when you're sitting yes. next to me. Well, trust me, I am, I am also a big advocate of the positive power of negative thinking. <laughs> Once we go out there with an ambitious notion, it is typically followed up by yours truly with what can go wrong. But it's that yin and yang which yeah. actually allows you to push forward. Yeah. All right. That, nah, that's it. That's a beautiful place to leave it on. Peter, I want to thank you very much My for coming pleasure. in. Keep watching. Uh, WGN America, the show is underground. Peter Liguri, CEO of Tribune Media. Thanks for coming in today. Appreciate thank you. It. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank All you. Right.